Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. The fast-moving impeachment inquiry into President Trump moves forward in Washington. Here are some developments so far this week to keep you up to speed. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has made clear that the impeachment inquiry will focus narrowly on Trump's interaction with Ukraine President Vladimir Zelensky and Trump's alleged abuse of power in asking a foreign government to provide dirt on a political rival. Pelosi has put House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff in charge. Another thing that happened, you might remember that the Justice Department, led by Attorney General William Barr, has been reviewing U.S. intelligence work surrounding the 2016 election and its aftermath. Trump has hoped that investigation would discredit the intelligence community's conclusion that Russia tried to help his campaign. Well, the Washington Post reported Monday that Barr had private overseas meetings with foreign intelligence officials, trying to get some help with that investigation. His personal involvement stoked criticism from Democrats that Barr is helping Trump use executive branch powers to boost investigations aimed primarily at the president's adversaries. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's role in the Ukraine investigation broadened after reports that he was on a July 25th phone call between Trump and Zelensky. As part of the impeachment inquiry, the House Foreign Affairs Committee had requested several State Department officials appear for depositions this week. Tuesday, though, Pompeo wrote a fiery letter to the committee chair saying those officials would not be made available until, quote, we obtain further clarity on these matters. Each of these news moments happened alongside Trump's intensifying public campaign against the anonymous whistleblower who wrote the initial complaint that set this whole process in motion. Trump has led his own defense effort on Twitter, suggesting the whistleblower is a fraud, questioning the person's credibility and calling for his or her identity to be revealed. In tweets Sunday night, Trump said he wants to meet who he calls his accuser and warned that person and those who leaked to him or her of big consequences. The targeted effort by the president of the United States to discredit and reveal the name of a government employee who, through proper channels, called attention to believed wrongdoing is striking. And it raises questions about a system to protect members of the intelligence community who choose to come forward. How do the president's calls to reveal the whistleblower's identity complicate existing protections? Can the president himself legally disclose the name of this individual? And what does it mean for future whistleblowers if he does? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Last week, we asked our listeners if you'd be interested in hearing more frequent impeachment news updates. Well, that ask was met with a resounding yes. So here's a Tuesday episode as the impeachment inquiry continues. 
National security reporter Matt Zapatosky is back this week. You might remember him from last week because we wanted to follow up with him about the protections for whistleblowers in the intelligence community. First, I asked Matt about Trump's strategy and what he's been focusing on in his attacks of the anonymous whistleblower on Twitter. A couple of things. Most recently, it's been who the whistleblower is, the identity of this person. President Trump seemed convinced that he deserves to know their identity and then whatever consequences might fall from that. He's also been focused on a couple other aspects of the whistleblower's complaint, in particular that a lot of the information in it is secondhand. The whistleblower talked to other officials in the government to form kind of the basis of the whistleblower's knowledge. They weren't on the phone call, the kind of critical phone call at issue. President Trump has been really, really focused on that. One of Trump's approaches, as you mentioned, is specifically trying to discredit the whistleblower for only having secondhand information. Meanwhile, the intelligence community's inspector general has said that the whistleblower's allegations are, in fact, credible, despite the secondhand nature. So first, can you tell me about the inspector general's reasoning for deeming the whistleblower credible? Yeah, so the inspector general does a preliminary review of the whistleblower's complaint. We don't know in total what that tails, but we do know it it involves a kind of general assessment of the person's position in the government. So the inspector general determines that this person actually has authorized access to the information that they're talking about. This isn't someone just like lobbing bombs that they don't know anything about and also has access to the officials that the person described. The inspector general revealed recently the whistleblower actually has direct knowledge of some events. We don't know exactly what those are, but those help inform the person's credibility. And the inspector general determines that the person is a subject matter expert in these areas. So all of those things in the inspector general's determination make this person credible. We know, though the inspector general doesn't really get at this because he doesn't actually see the call or see a rough transcript of the call before he decides that this is credible. But we know the whistleblower's complaint about the call, which the whistleblower wasn't on, the account that the whistleblower gives lines up closely with the rough transcript. So while the inspector general doesn't have the benefit of that knowledge because the inspector general didn't actually look at the rough transcript before deeming this credible, we know just in the public that that's another piece of evidence in favor of the whistleblower's credibility. And yet regardless of that, Trump has tweeted that the rules for whistleblower complaints were recently changed to allow secondhand information to be passed on. Is that the case? Have the rules for whistleblower complaints changed recently? The short answer is no, but it is a very complicated issue. This kind of first cropped up because this conservative um, news organization called The Federalist reported in recent days that, well, the rules had changed um, and that it used to be whistleblowers had to have direct knowledge. And now, just recently, the rules were changed so they were allowed to have secondhand knowledge and pass along secondhand concerns. In fact, the law has not changed in recent days. It really hasn't changed since 2014. What did change are the forms for submitting a complaint in the Federalist um, found a genuine form and and sort of informational materials that go with it that suggested uh, that you needed firsthand knowledge. And then they found a later form that didn't have that suggestion. When there was that reporting, whistleblower lawyers were a little bit like, what the heck? You've never needed firsthand information. That's just never been the case. But these forms kind of confused the issue because they suggested you did. The inspector general just yesterday came out with a statement essentially saying, 
look, we did have this form. It did make this suggestion. If you read it kind of incorrectly, that was never in the law. You don't need firsthand knowledge. You can't have secondhand knowledge. And we, the inspector general, just make a determination on if that is credible. And of course, firsthand knowledge could be more credible, but that's not to say secondhand knowledge isn't credible too. So short answer to your question, no, the rules didn't change, but the forms did change. Um, and that's sort of what Trump is seizing on. Okay. And what have the whistleblower's lawyers said about these attacks on the whistleblower, him or herself, and calls to find this person's identity? The whistleblower's lawyers are very, very concerned about this. If you flash back a couple days, President Trump sort of compared this person to a spy and suggested there could be consequences of that, which seems like hinting at some kind of fatal violence to the person. So the whistleblower's lawyers are very concerned and they are adamant that as long as they can, they are going to protect the person's identity and that they hope that other officials in the government will step up and protect the person's identity. And their concerns are just magnified because it's the president of the United States suggesting he wants to out him. So that's essentially the big pieces of the public battle that's been playing out, mostly via Trump's Twitter feed. But to understand all of this better, I want to talk about how this process of filing a complaint out of the intelligence community is supposed to work. First, can you just address how a whistleblower who goes through a formal process is different than someone who just leaks something to the press directly? Yeah. So I think backing up even before that, obviously there are a lot of people in government who think they might be on to wrongdoing and they're tempted. They want to report that. Some people might be tempted to do it publicly, some people to their bosses. In the intelligence community, which is what we're talking about here, there are real, real sensitivities even beyond other aspects of government because you're often talking about classified information, about the most sensitive of information. So there is a process that they can report up. Of course, whistleblowers have the ability to go to the press. But when you're in the intelligence community, you might get charged with a crime if you do that. If you go to the press, even if you think there is wrongdoing and you leak classified information, that can be a crime. So there is a process, though, for those in the intelligence community to report this up without going to the press in hopes that it will kind of be addressed. One thing that I have struggled to understand in this process is who knows the identity of the whistleblower at which points. So when you first file the complaint with the inspector general, does the inspector general know your identity? In this case, they do. And I think generally they almost have to. But you do have the right to be anonymous. So in this case, the inspector general of the intelligence community knows the identity of the person. But the director of national intelligence has said he doesn't know the identity of the person. Justice Department officials have told us they don't know the identity of the person. They know the substance of the complaint and there's been some public reporting about who the person is. So it might not be that hard for them to try to figure it out. But they have said they don't know. Only the inspector general of the intelligence community knows. And the person does have a, a sort of right to be anonymous. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. Does adhering to the proper protocol, as this whistleblower did, offer inherent protections? It offers some. 
there's no real parallel for this situation because we're talking about the president. But there are processes that are supposed to protect whistleblowers who do the right thing, even in the intelligence community. So I think I mentioned earlier, you know, the intelligence community has special sensitivities because of the classified nature of the work they do. So in, in most instances, if a whistleblower in the government is retaliated against, there's an office, a government office that can investigate that. There's this board of people that can weigh whether they were retaliated against and what remedy they should face. But the intelligence community is different. It wasn't even until about 2014 that they had in law codified protections and their protections are still outside of this um, Merit Systems Protections Board and office that investigates possible retaliation. Their recourse is essentially with the inspector general or with inspectors general who if the whistleblower feels they're retaliated against, they can complain and the inspectors general or the inspector general can kind of weigh whether that complaint has merit and recommend some kind of corrective action. Here. It's hard to say how that would work for a variety of reasons. Chief among them is the law talks about who is in charge of protecting whistleblowers, who's the ultimate authority at the end of the day, and it's the president. So if the president were to do something to this whistleblower, it's hard to see how there could be any corrective action. And important. So the, the, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. the inspector general cannot, he himself, offer protections to the whistleblower. They have to come from the president. Essentially, yes. I mean, the policies, the law spells out how the inspector general can protect this guy if they're retaliated against like saying, hey, the whistleblower should get their job back, let's say, or they should be awarded back pay. But the president kind of supersedes that because the president is in charge of enforcing these policies. So it's just hard to imagine a world where the president himself retaliates and the inspector general is able to correct that in some way. It seems almost impossible for that to happen. Even in much lower level cases, whistleblower attorneys will tell you those protections are hardly protections at all. If a manager wants to fire somebody, often they just do it and very little is done. There's a huge backlog of addressing these cases. And if it's the president, boy, there are, there are real questions about could you do anything. He's in charge of all of these people. He's in charge of the executive branch and the law specifically says he's in charge of whistleblower protection. Is there any sort of protection that can be preventative, something that can proactively protect the whistleblower from being targeted? The idea is that these restorative measures would prevent retaliation, you know, that you would worry if you're the person's manager, gosh, if I fire the whistleblower, maybe something would happen to me. Like that's the worry is that whatever decision is made is going to get overruled and maybe some corrective action could affect your life. But these protections just aren't very strong. I mean, there's not like specific language that if it is found that someone is retaliated against, the retaliator will lose their job and the person will be awarded three times back pay. Like there isn't any specific punishment like that. It's really all up to the inspector general. And if they don't agree with the inspector general, then kind of a board of inspectors general. So those are supposed to be preventative. Like the law dis discourages retaliating against whistleblowers. But if somebody was going to do it, there's just not a huge level of specific consequence that they would face. Does the law outline consequences for revealing a whistleblower's identity? Not really. That in itself, you know, the question the way whistleblower lawyers frame it to me is, would that itself constitute 
retaliation. And it depends on who you ask. If it led to some kind of adverse professional consequence, you could possibly argue it's retaliatory. Some attorneys frame to me, take it outside of the whistleblower context, you could argue that's a violation of the Privacy Act, which is a different law, that um, it's a misdemeanor crime. It's like revealing government information about somebody. It's a misdemeanor crime that has like a $5,000 fine. You could sue civilly and say, you know, Whoever outed you, you know, violated the Privacy Act, but it's just, it's an almost never criminally enforced law. And even in the civil context, there is some debate about how you would be able to use that. It has been used in the past. One whistleblower lawyer I was talking to who represented Linda Tripp, who was this woman kind of at the center of the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky scandal. Um, some Defense Department officials had actually found information in her background check file and revealed that. And um, they were sued. Sued, uh, the government was sued and ultimately settled with this woman for $595,000. And that was essentially a Privacy Act violation. It wasn't any kind of whistleblower thing. So that's how you could potentially use that. Gosh, if this is the president, they have all sorts of immunity from civil suits. It's hard to imagine the Privacy Act being enforced against that person. What if a whistleblower's identity itself is a government secret? Is it a crime to reveal that person's identity? Yeah. So that one's much more clear. And you kind of saw that in the Valerie Plame case in the Bush administration where a CIA officer whose identity is supposed to be protected is outed. And that could be sort of a, a just straight up leak case, almost like if a whistleblower just leaked classified information, you would go after the person who leaked the whistleblower's name the same way you might go after a whistleblower who leaked classified information. Now, with the one hitch being that the president totally controls classification. So if President Trump today were to tweet and say, I am declassifying this person's name, this is the person and they're being fired, you know, whistleblower attorneys told me that there's probably very little that could be done about that because he has so much authority in this area. But for somebody else, you know, if Mike Pompeo, for example, were to learn the identity of the whistleblower and disclose it and that whistleblower's identity was a protected government secret, that could be a legal problem. But what if Mike Pompeo, for example, in this metaphor, goes to Donald Trump, the president, and shares the identity of the whistleblower with the president. Is that a crime? Yeah, that would be hard to say that that's a crime because telling the president something is not you wouldn't be breaking classification laws there. Essentially, what we have here are a set of not that well-tested laws applying to our current circumstances. Correct. OK. One big moment in all of this that makes this even more puzzling is that the whistleblower has come to an agreement with the House Intelligence Committee to provide testimony to them. How can that work in a way that protects this whistleblower's identity? Boy, <laughs> I mean, that is a tough one. And, I, you know, the Privacy Act doesn't even apply to Congress. So if this person came in and Devin Nunes recognized them and decided to tweet their name, it's hard to see how that could be a problem. Um, it's If this person is going to testify before Congress, presumably they could put all sorts of practical strictures in place to prevent anyone from spotting this person or recognizing this person. Maybe they could even have them testify without their name. But boy, that would, you know, if you're, if you're having them testify to assess their credibility, that's going to be a tough road to hoe. If the person does testify, they could presumably say, hey, we agree that we're not going to reveal it. But with as leaky as Congress it is, it just feels like that would be a real tall order. 
And presumably the whistleblower knows those circumstances going in. Certainly. And the whistleblower is – the whistleblower's lawyers are in talks with Congress. I mean in a situation this high profile, it might be the fact that it's just inevitable that one day it will come out. And you would think this whistleblower has very smart attorneys who are also fairly media savvy attorneys. And I think they certainly are probably cognizant of the fact that there's going to be a great effort to identify this person. And there are people in the, in the White House who probably are motivated to get the name out there. So they're probably clear-eyed about this thing, though they say they want to protect the identity as long as they possibly can. So do you expect extreme measures to be taken to protect this whistleblower's identity or extreme measures to be taken by the president and the White House to reveal it? It feels like both. I yeah. mean, I, I, it feels like there are going to be extreme measures taken by the intelligence community inspector general who's really intent on keeping this person secret, by the person's lawyers, especially by Democratic congressmen and trying to get this person in and assure the person that, look, your life isn't going to be upended. But the way the president is tweeting and talking about this, he really wants to figure out who the person is and the president has a lot of power. There's already been information out about the whistleblower that could help the president even just take a guess at who it might be just given some of the identifying information we already have. So um, I expect efforts on both sides. There'll be this great you know, groundswell of people who want to protect the whistleblower, but also there are going to be a lot of very motivated and powerful people who want to identify the whistleblower. And simultaneously, we might set some legal precedents along the way. Yeah, we'll see about that. I mean, a lot of these things whistleblower attorneys would tell you depend on people acting in good faith. So it says, well, the whistleblower has the right to be anonymous. Okay, that's great. And what happens if somebody outs him? There's no penalty for that. It's not, you know, if the whistleblower's identity isn't classified, it's not like you can smack someone with revealing classified information. Like the law can say something, but when you have someone who's willing to break it, there needs to be a stick and there there aren't very aggressive sticks in this case. I mean, just for a straight up firing, the whistleblower wouldn't even have the right to go to court and sue over that. So um, I think this is going to shine a light on kind of how the whistleblower protections aren't as strong as we maybe hoped they are and where we might have once lived in a world where the law would say something and there was a general respect for what it is. If the law doesn't – the law needs to explicitly lay out consequences or else it's kind of toothless when you have someone who's willing to kind of push the boundaries of it. All right. Last question to you. How do you expect the significance of this complaint to shift as we learn more over time? Will it continue to be front and center throughout this impeachment inquiry or might it change? It seems like Democrats are very – are trying to keep a tight focus on the complaint and on President Trump's pressure of his Ukrainian counterpart. It seems like they don't want to stray in a lot of other areas. That said, one of the most interesting things that the whistleblower laid out was this wasn't the first time that um, there had been kind of a problematic call that was moved to a classified system to sort of protect the president politically. So I would expect because of news reporting, because of congressional inquiries, perhaps because other whistleblowers come forward, that will be like the thrust. What else is there? What other calls? What were set on those calls? And I could see that expanding. The whistleblower part of that person's value is is saying that, look, there are other officials who are concerned. So if Congress really wants to get to the bottom of this, they're going to have to try to get to those people. And I could see that kind of – I could see it kind of growing from this complaint, still being focused on the complaint, but kind of growing naturally from it. All right. Well, stay tuned for that. Thanks so much, Matt. Thank you. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? 
Remember, as always, if you liked it, to please review us wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'll be back on Friday. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the industrious Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudall-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 